1: And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term, careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com Amicus Live for tickets.
0: This episode of Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. To learn about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy, subscribe to the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Amazon's original series, Bosch, based on the best-selling novels by Michael Conley. Stream the new season
2: now on Amazon Prime Video. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate's sports podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 21st, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the odd happenings at the NCAA tournament, including tourney favorite Michigan State losing in the first round to Middle Tennessee State. I had totally forgotten about that. Oh, yeah. That was 18 <laughs> and upsets Northern ago. Iowa making a half-court buzzer beater to win in round one before blowing a 12-point lead in just more than 30 seconds to lose in round two. We'll also talk to former UConn Huskies star Sue Bird about that school's continued dominance of women's college basketball, as well as her recent piece about the lack of analytics in the women's game. Finally, Allison Benedict of the Slate podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting. will be here to talk about Chicago White Sox first baseman Adam LaRoche's decision to retire because the team asked him to cut down on how much time his son spent in the clubhouse. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. Author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and a man who has contrived to bring his daughter to many Scrabble tournaments. Mm-hmm. Hello, Stefan. Hi. With us in New York is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca and Mike's two sons. Hello, Pesca family. Yes, we're all here.
3: And uh, I also want to disclose that I, too, have asked the Chicago White Sox to raise my children. <laughs>
2: Um we're gonna have a live show in DC coming up on Monday night, April twenty-fifth at the Wooly Mammoth Theater. Will your uh, child be there, Stefan? Yes, I'm going to
4: bring my child. As soon as she's done folding the White Sox laundry,
2: (laughs) then she'll she'll come to the live show. Stefan will be there, Stefan's daughter will be there, Mike will be there, I will be there. Um would be fantastic if you guys came these live shows are always really fun if you haven't been to one before um i think you'd really enjoy it if you like our show it's in dc home turf for two out of the three of us we'll have a fantastic special guest we'll do a special live show type business and it'll be great slate.com slash live that
4: was a very trumpian promise we're gonna have a fantastic special guest we don't really know who the guest is yet do we
2: we're going to have a fantastic special guest, whoever it may be. It's going to be awesome. We'll announce it soon. <laughs> and it might it might
3: truly be a Trumpian promise because that guest will be our own heads. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Slate.com slash live. I'm getting bronzed for the show in advance. Um, there are also a bunch of other uh, live shows happening coming up. Um, in April, you can see the Culture Gab Fest live in Manhattan. Um, and the Political Gab Fest is coming to Atlanta at the end of April. If you want more information on those shows... And uh, on our show as well, you can visit slate.com slash live. Um, we're also doing a call-in show coming up. I think we're gonna that's going to be the show for April 11th. So uh, give us a call before April 4th, actually. I might be giving you too much information. But there can never be too much information about when to call for a call-in show. The phone number, for example, is seven. 77- Hang up ten. Call us on a good phone line. Call us with a question that's evergreen, so it won't be out of date by the time we answer it. Call us with your philosophical questions. Call us with questions about recommendations. Mm-hmm. Stefan, what else should they call us about?
4: Let me just jump in and say that the show is going to be on April
2: eleventh because two of us
4: will be away that
2: day. Well, that's that's when we're airing we're it, but that's not show. that's not the important no. It's not piece of in, information the, when we're the, taping it. We're taping it before that, so call like. us soon. 7, 7 hang up 10. We'd love to hear from you and answer your questions. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we'll talk about the NFL's supposed admission um, about uh, CTE and whether the NFL causes it. To hear this bonus segment and others like it, on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial of the show at slate.com slash plus. First uh, weekend of the NCAA tournament, there are kind of two distinct stages here. Stage one, 10 wins by double-digit seeds, uh, the most ever in an NCAA tournament, 11 first-round upsets by seed line. That tied a record. Your Middle Tennessees, your Yales, your Hawai'is, et cetera. And then in the second round, they all lost. I like to call them the seedlings. The uh, Stephen F. Austins, you lost. So um, in the Sweet 16, it's 15 major conference schools plus Gonzaga. Is the Big lo- East a major conference school? Yeah, we'll go. F- sure. We'll, we'll in basketball. Yeah. Okay, It's basketball, big. It's it. big. Um, Villanova and Gonzaga. Six, yeah. six teams from the ACC. Um, but before we move on to that, let's talk about some of the more bizarre happenings from Phase 1. Mike, which uh, one do you want to start with?
3: Phase 1, so we can't even talk about uh, – The NCAA has rebranded it as phase one, not round one.
2: I always... Here we talk about Northern Iowa's uh, blowing it to Texas AM. Yeah that was that was that was it. Well that here was, was the thing here was my what I my
3: uh, theme of the tournament was amazing performances from amazing players who got eliminated. So I think the three most amazing players in this tournament so far were Jeremy Morgan from Northern Iowa, a kid who had who averages 10, who had I think 34 in that game. Now to be fair, if they had just closed it out in regulation, he would have had only you know 26 or or something, but I rarely see people score 25 or so points above their average. Then Kentucky's Euless was just an amazing guy to watch, and they lose to Indiana. And walk up, the the guy with the lumberjack beard doing the hipster Brooklyn thing from <laughs> Stephen F. Austin. The lumberjacks. Oh, he was, he was amazing. So these were, I think, the three most captivating players of the tournament, and they all went
2: down. I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. Well, I think that this year's tournament has been just totally bereft of stars. The only guys who are considered top NBA prospects who are left in the field are Oklahoma's Buddy Heald and Duke's Brandon Ingram. And Ingram is great, but that's more kind of a, you know, a long-term thing. He's not like the best player in college basketball this year or something. So really, it's only Buddy Heald who is a great player, who is great right, right now. And so what we're left with is still like – this, this just shows why the NCAA tournament is just such a great television and sports product is that it can be compelling, like, not just because there are great players in it. There are so many different reasons why a team is good. It can be because, like, somebody you've never heard of has an amazing performance. So Stephen F. Austin. So, you know, Hawaii. So whoever in the first round. It can be because there's, like, just a crazy shot at the end of a game, Northern Iowa, beating Texas on the half court buzzer beater or it can be and I do want to I want to like narrow our focus on this cuz it was so crazy the end of the Northern Iowa Tech AM game where AM came back from 12 down with 44 seconds to go where it's just like a combination of like college basketball level incompetence nah. and you know the goodness you know good play by another team but this wasn't a great Game because the teams played well,
4: <laughs> no.
2: But what was great about it was
4: that it, that it did embody college basketball in all of its flaws. I mean, the last minute of the game was like Hoosiers regressing to the mean. I mean, those poor Northern Iowa kids were panicked. Their best ball handler—they're kids. They're their kids kids, back to being kids. Yeah, the the their best ball handler and their best inbounds passer was hurt, had a knee injury a couple of minutes before the end of the game. So he's on the bench trying to stretch, and he doesn't come back in. And then everything that had to occur for that sequence to occur, occurred. I mean, Texas A&M, first of all, I mean, you can't imagine that with 44 seconds to go, they're sitting on the bench going, oh, we can still do this. But somebody recognized that you got to keep trying, so don't give up. They recognized that they shouldn't foul to stop the clock because they were down by too much, that they had to force UNI to make errors, and that the best way to force them to make errors was to pressure the inbounds passer and trap if they managed to get the ball in and trap like they had never done before, and then for everything to completely be given to them so that the ball lands in someone's hands who can then put in a layup.
2: Yeah, you're acting like this was an intellectual exercise. Like oh. it was like it was all just nobody had ever thought to do this before. Um for Well, most teams don't th- Well, a lot of te- Yeah, most teams would most teams would have given up. Most teams would have right. given up down 12 with 44 seconds to go. 30 seconds to go, right? 31 yes. seconds. So to it was
3: 69 57. Yep. The ball in the air. And the, a couple of things that happened. I mean, teams definitely have that panic look in their eyes and they say, just get me out of here. And with that amount of lead in that amount of time, yeah, it always happens, except this one time it didn't. And, you know, you're allowed the rules of basketball, a five second rule is you have to dribble the ball or move the ball within five seconds. So, so if someone throws you the ball, you could hold hold it for four and a half seconds. Then you could dribble for four and a half seconds. Then you can hold it for four and a half seconds more. All right, That's 13 and a half seconds. The Northern Iowa players had just done that every time they'd be out of there. Sure, we could make a million if they had done this every time. But the fact that there were two instances, the first where you try to throw it off uh, an opponent and that guy stole it and immediately goes for the layup, you would think maybe that would teach the guy not to do it the second time. the, The game tying time. I've never seen anything
2: like that. Yeah, four botched inbounds plays in 30 seconds. The part that I found the most amazing is, and you would think that this just theoretically isn't possible, they scored 14 points in 32 seconds Mm -hmm. without ever fouling the other team. The only way to get the ball back in these situations is to stop the clock. like We've talked about how the the end of basketball games is kind of screwed up because of intentional fouling. It's just this weird situation. And that's really the only strategy that you can use that works. They scored 14 points without ever fouling the other team because they just kept throwing it to them. It was insane. And, you know, Bill James and his piece about the lead being safe and how he calculates it, the way that he explains the heuristic is at a certain point, the sequence of events Even if each individual event isn't impossible, the sequence of events is so improbable in accumulation that it becomes impossible. And that's what was overcome here.
4: And on the Bill James calculator, a 12-point lead with the ball, which Northern Iowa did have, is safe up to 1 minute and 30 seconds to go in the game. So a minute 30 to go in the game, up 12 with the ball, 100% chance of winning.
3: He assumes that at no point does the team with the lead just give a perfect assist to the opponent, let alone <laughs> two points. Those trying, when they tried to throw the ball off the guy, if you noticed, he launched his body back backwards and threw it, which is, I guess, the non-dickish way to do it. What you should do is throw yourself at the guy so he has no chance to respond. He created a little buffer. They're undone by Midwestern politeness. There's a lot to break down about what went wrong, but this was a classic bad way to throw the ball (laughs) off the other guy drill. And what what was surprising about it, too, is that
4: you know, Ten seconds before that, when they when uh, Texas A&M had cut the lead to three, they did execute the perfect inbound yeah, they had,
3: play. In the middle of all this was like a perfect, was one perfect,
4: perfect home play. run. They threw yes. the ball three-quarters of the length of the quarter, half the length of the court to a guy that was sprinting forward who dunked it to go back up five.
2: So um, let's get back to the Michigan State lost to Middle Tennessee State. And there was a lot of conversation around whether this was the biggest upset ever. I had picked Michigan State to win the title. A lot of people did. They were either the favorite or the second favorite in Vegas. Um, Middle Tennessee was better than the typical 15 seed. And so 538 and other folks had actually Norfolk State over Missouri a few years ago was a bigger upset, not because Missouri was great, but because Norfolk State was actually quite bad in the regular season. But I thought this was a really appropriate thing to happen in this tournament because the teams at the very top of the game Um, this year were not good um, compared to past years. You can look at it subjectively and you can look at it objectively. They had a lot of losses. If you look at efficiency stats, the top teams weren't very good. And I think we all just kind of get used to the way that the game slowly evolves. Like, college basketball is less good. It's not as good of a product now as it was when the players were better before guys were going to the NBA You know, after one year. But this was what should have happened this year. If it wasn't this particular upset, it's in keeping with the season. And so then it's odd that all four number one seeds advanced. So, like, somehow the Michigan State thing feels appropriate. And yet, on the other hand, the, like, chalk is advancing. It's this weird kind of disconnect. Where the chalk
4: is advancing, but we were very close to a lot of chalk not advancing. I mean, St. Joe's blew a lead to Oregon late last night. Wichita State blew a lead to Miami, Stephen F. Austin lost on a tip-in at the buzzer to Notre Dame, Xavier's a two-seed, they blew a lead and lost at the buzzer. Um, So we were close to having a lot of less familiar names in the Sweet 16 rather than if you just looked at the 16 teams now, you'd say, oh, you know, all the big schools, yeah.
3: Yeah, well, in the South, we have uh, their their semifinalists are a one and a five and a two and a three. And in the West, it's a one and a four and a two and a three. So that's pure chalk. Mm -hmm. And then in the East, it's a one and a five and then a six and a seven, which isn't the craziest thing in the world. And then we have a one and a four and, of course, the Gonzaga-Syracuse thing. But it strikes me that no matter what the committee does and how much they screw up, they just get rewarded for it because we all are thrilled when Gonzaga uh, goes on a run and beats Utah, but Gonzaga should never even be... Playing Utah, they deserved a much higher seed than 11. Or when Wichita State beats Arizona, Wichita State goes into that game as the favorite. And then we're all thrilled or it seems very exciting that Michigan State loses and we do that extra thing of saying, oh, maybe they really didn't deserve a number one seed. Well, if the committee hadn't screwed up, the committee benefits from us saying, oh, maybe the committee was right. No, it's because the committee was wrong that they had to play a stronger team in Middle Tennessee State than whoever they would have gotten as the number one seed poorly seeded tournament but adds for extra excitement
2: (laughs) there is really no way to screw this up i mean i do think that given the number of high seeds that won in the first round and this is not just like a one-off observation this happens every year there is no case to be made that a team like monmouth does not belong like you can look at the resume and make an argument about a specific team in a specific year that a team from a smaller conference shouldn't be in. But there is no kind of macro argument about, you know, a team from, for example, like whatever conference Stephen F. Austin is in, or whatever conference Monmouth is in, not belonging in the field with, you know, your Michigan State's Or, uh, you know, whoever else blew it in the first round.
3: Uh, So two points. One is if a team were not to make it not by the committee's stupid math where they let Tulsa, Michigan, Wichita State, and Vanderbilt in as the 11th, it would have been Syracuse who was left out of the tournament and they won a couple games. It will just always persist. You know, Stephen F. Austin and West Virginia play really, really similar styles based on everything except conference. You would say Stephen F. Austin maybe has the edge in that matchup. But of course they couldn't because of styles. Well, they go up against each other and they blow West Virginia off the floor. And so it will never, what will ever change? How can that ever change the perception if not only do you have the perception of big conferences, you know, certain, the best schools will get the best players in high school, and Kansas is a better school than Stephen F. Austin. But then the school that's the fourth best in Kansas' conference, West Virginia, they might have even been second best, we will always say, well, of course they're better. They play Kansas. So I don't see how that can ever change.
4: It can't. And that's why we will continue to have these conversations every year around the NCAA tournament. Right, and Yay. the only way, the,
3: the only, the only uh, justice that will happen is the conversation won't change among the people in the committee who seed the tournament. But then the Stephen F. Austins will just have to go out there and win. Although, by the way, they'll have a, a tougher time because their seating won't be as good. Right.
2: Up next, we will speak to Sue Bird, the uh, women's basketball legend about UConn and about her piece on analytics and women's sports. But first, a word from our sponsor. Amazon's original series, Bosch, returns for an all-new season based on Michael Connelly's best-selling novels. Harry Bosch, the tenacious LAPD homicide detective, is back on the job after an involuntary leave of absence. His first case back may prove his biggest challenge yet as he follows a dangerous trail of corruption and collusion, one that uncovers the dark side of the police department and threatens Bosch's relentless pursuit of truth. Stream the new season of Bosch now on Amazon Prime Video, and listen to the companion podcast, A Fine Mist of Blood, on SoundCloud or Stitcher. On Saturday in Storrs, Connecticut, the UConn women took a 41-4 lead over Robert Morris after the first quarter of their first-round NCAA tournament game. 41-4! The Huskies (laughs) led by 49 at halftime and by 61 after three quarters, before holding on for a 101-49 to 49 win. It was their 70th consecutive victory, which is 20 wins shy of the women's basketball record, also held by UConn, set between 2008 and 2010. Sue Bird was not on either of those teams, but she did win two national titles at UConn, which is great. And she's the school's all-time leader in three-point field goal percentage and free throw percentage. She was the national player of the year her senior year. She's one of nine women to win an NCAA title, a WNBA title, and an Olympic gold medal. She now plays for the Seattle Storm in the WNBA, and she's calling games, though not UConn ones so far, uh, for ESPN during the Women's Tournament. Finally, she wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune on the absence of analytics in women's sports. Sue Bird, thanks for being with us.
5: (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: So the UConn team is looking very robust, (laughs) as usual. (laughs) As
5: usual, mm-hmm. um yeah. I mean, they're a machine,
2: so this is a team that's on a seventy game winning streak. I mentioned the ninety game winning streak before. Right. as As a player, when you're on a team that is the clear favorite that has not lost in a really long time, do you feel like indomitable, or do you feel super stressed out because if you lose, then you're just <laughs> you know breaking this amazing, amazing run?
5: Yeah. Um, you know, the thing about going to Connecticut that I don't think enough people talk about is, um, you know, you've, the fact that they continually go on these win streaks and, and really what that is. And that's like a crazy level of consistency where you never have a bad night. I mean, everybody has a bad night, you know, golden state warriors have bad nights, this group. They're not programmed to have a bad night. And, and all I mean by that is, are we stressed out or are they stressed out? Not really. The only stress they really feel is when they go to practice, because that's how hard it is. And that's how hard the coaches make it. And they do that for a reason. And obviously the product is a team that when they take the floor, I mean, they are just machines. I mean, you watch that game against Robert Morris and I get it. I get like the casual basketball fans going to tune in and be like, oh, here we go again. I get it. But for a second, if you can just appreciate how difficult it is to be that consistent, no matter who your opponent is, it's pretty to watch.
2: Their greatness almost makes them seem less great, if that makes sense, yeah. by making the other teams look so bad.
5: It, it, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great way to put it, because a lot of people who don't really, whether it's like women's basketball or appreciate it, you know, they talk about, oh, UConn's bad for the game. Oh, wouldn't it be great to have closer games? Actually, I In think, think it'd In that tone of great.
3: voice, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't be guy voice. What? In that tone of voice. In that, of that voice. tone of voice. <laughs>
5: This is my morning voice. What are you talking about? Um, Yeah. So I think if every other team would kind of raise their own programs and and get to UConn's level, then think about the basketball that would be being played.
4: Now, that's easy to say, Sue, but how much of an advantage does Gino Auriemma have because of the success that he has created at UConn? Let's be clear. this This is not a random occurrence that UConn is so good but in a sort of more diluted environment where there aren't as many top prospects to go around as there are in men's basketball, clearly being able to come to UConn or UConn being able to to accumulate so many of them does ensure that at the very least, the team is going to continue to play at a very, very high level.
6: Yeah, I mean,
5: obviously I I have to agree with that statement. I mean, what he does, you know, he's the difference, right? And what he's able to do, along with his staff is obviously incredible and, and what they have, I think more than anybody is just an eye for not just talent, but the right kind of talent and the right kind of kid, but I'm sorry, all these other programs, I mean, they have just as many all Americans, you know, there's what 20 McDonald's all Americans named. He only gets two or three. Where are the other ones going? And that's like my argument. And people always say like, Oh, UConn's just more talented. Now, don't get me wrong. They are more talented, but what he does with the talent is what sets them apart. There are plenty of other talented players out there. And I just don't know that there are other programs that demand excellence the way that he does.
3: Do you think that it's different from when you were being recruited and you had at least, um, you know, I, I would say back then, Tennessee was the preeminent team. So you had two pillars going against each other. Now that Tennessee has receded, UConn can get the best players. And another argument that I heard Kate Fagan of five thirty-eight making is that with men's basketball, you could say to yourself, oh, I'll go to any number of schools and I'll still make the NBA with women's basketball, the pinnacle of your career to most uh, female players is college. So you're going to want to go to the best. It's very unlikely you'll be lured away to a program you perceive as second best.
5: Right. Well, when I was being recruited, this was not, I mean, something I didn't mention in the last question was the thing that Coach Ariyama has right now over everybody else is like this mental advantage where I think teams and coaches and they have a ton of respect for him, but they're also almost scared. You know, there's when teams take the floor against Connecticut, they've lost before they even step foot. And that's actually why Notre Dame has done so well against them. You don't sense that. You don't sense a fear. I think he has like a obviously he's like a big personality. When he walks in the room, you know it. And it it has an effect. But in terms of my recruitment, you got to take it way back now, fellas, UConn had <laughs> only one, one time. Okay. Now it was in like crazy epic fashion, 1995, Rebecca Lobo, they go undefeated. They're all over the media and I'm from New York. So I wasn't too far away. And I got to see a lot of it on TV and see it in the paper. So they were big, but in 1997, when I was choosing my school, they had only won once, they were not that much different from every other program. And I did not even look at Tennessee or they didn't even look at me. I got, and I got recruited by a ton of other schools and it came down to like Vanderbilt and Stanford. I mean, who knows what would have, you know, what life would have been had I not gone to Connecticut. But back then it wasn't like that. I mean, this has really been built over the last couple years. Truly this like four year stint has really put it at that like dominant, dominant level.
2: It's like you got Apple uh, stock options when they were $10. Sue, you got it on the ground yeah. floor.
5: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: So I want to ask about Brianna Stewart and sort of where you rank her among the great UConn players. She's going for her fourth uh, national title and I think her fourth tournament, you know, MVP. So where do you put her, you know, compared to some of your teammates and and some of the other UConn greats?
5: Yeah. I mean, well, first and and foremost, it's like... How crazy that the only way to separate yourself, if you're somebody that went to Yukon, the only way to separate yourself is to win four in a row.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
5: that just speaks to like what other players have done and how successful the program is. That's the only way to separate yourself. So if this if this does work out and, you know, they win and she regardless of the actually regardless of the tournament most valuable player, that would just be icing on the cake. But if, if her and her classmates, her senior class, they win four in a row, that'll put her, you know, in a different conversation than Diana, than Maya, you know? And I think those are the two that really pop in my head as as of the list of the best. Now, personally, in terms of, like, best player, to me, Diana will always be the best player that played at Connecticut. I mean, you can make the argument in so many different ways. The ways I, I would make it is just her ability to make her teammates better. I mean, even Maya, Stewie, they had all Americans around them. Now Diana played with my class her freshman and sophomore year, but her junior and senior year when they won again and again, she had no all-Americans on her team. She carried those teams, and that to me is it will always, you know, set her apart regardless of the number of championships.
3: So you so you wrote on the players tribune a uh a plea for more analytics in the WNBA and women's basketball. Sure. Of course. I'd love that. But do you think the analytics lag more than any other thing that's ancillary to the league? Like, you know, the leagues at whatever popularity it's at when the NBA was at that popularity. Sure. The idea of advanced analytics weren't uh, as far advanced, but there was less. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could do a number of ways to uh, analyze something that the league should have inspired, you know, the number of T-shirts around town, right? The number of whatever you want to say, the number of um, references in pop culture. Do you think analytics is worse than some of these other things or um, is analytics roughly in line with where the league is?
2: Well, if we had the analytics, Mike, we could figure that out. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Good
5: point. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know the answer to that. I mean... I, I do think you know a large part of that article was to start a conversation, which it has. You know, most people didn't even realize a lot of you know what was said in it, and um, it's been eye opening, I think, for many. But I think I am at the end of the day going to agree with what you said. It's actually the whole idea that the WNBA lacks in these things, or women's basketball lacks in these things, is kind of part of the bigger idea, the you know the bigger picture that there's a lot that women's basketball needs to you know, to continue to do and get better at and improve at, not just from like players, coaches and that side of things, but fans and, and, and so forth. I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand the internet came about at a certain time and yada, yada, yada. But if you tried to look up like any kind of box score from like 10 years ago, good luck. Yeah, it'll take you like yeah. 30 minutes.
2: Well, you were talking about this with Zach Lowe on his podcast. And he was saying yeah. that he could even that, for yeah. UConn games, he couldn't find stuff. And I was actually looking up what the biggest comeback was in the history of NCAA Division I women's basketball, because we talked about that on uh, this week's show about Northern Iowa and Texas A&M. And in 2006, Texas State came back from a 32-point deficit. They were losing 40-8, to and I couldn't find anything that was written about this game. I couldn't find a box score. I couldn't find play-by-play. I wanted to talk Mm -hmm. about it. But, you know, this isn't advanced analytics. This is just, like, a cool thing that happened in women's basketball that like, you have to hire an archivist or researcher to figure it out.
5: Yeah, it's really hard. And that's just one. I mean, Zach's actually the one that brought that up. And he put the idea in my head. That's just one. But we've all experienced it. That's how you know, the article, that's really how it kind of got started. Literally, we were bored in Russia, like just trying to have random conversation. And you couldn't (laughs) find anything. And it was it was frustrating.
3: Well, analytics comes from people. Uh, a friend of mine, Kevin yeah. Pelton, who's the best, was you, you probably oh, yeah. know Kevin. He's a, he was a Seattle Storm guy, and he didn't even yep. he didn't leave town when the Supersonics did. He stayed no, there. No, he didn't. And Kept doing analytics for the Storm, and now he's a big ESPN guy. But until you have the couple of people with the passion, there's this thing. You were up at Sloan. You know what the analytics community is. It's yes. mostly male based, but I think it's I think that stat geeks are are interesting in that if you give them a niche they'll go for it so i Mm -hmm. think that you know you just have to kind of lead them to the idea that this is ripe territory and two things will happen one their curiosity will take them there but two if the wnba front offices realize what the nba has they'll want to hire these people and that's a good place to get in on the ground floor if wnba teams themselves start employing advanced analytics
5: okay so obviously there's like there's data then there's stats. Then mm-hmm. to me, there's like advanced analytics. You know, it kind of goes in this progression in, in some ways in terms of what numbers do you want? How are you going to use them? How deep do you want them to go? So th- the analytics stuff, it's not really in our league yet. I don't know that that many teams are, are trying to use it. Now, I know my team is, and a lot of it has to do with Kevin Pelton. Yeah. He works very closely with my head coach. And they'll analyze, I mean, some of the emails that I get forwarded, I'm like, oh, my God, someone needs to translate this. It's like, well, this person's per and times this and divided by. I have no idea what the hell is going on in any of these emails. <laughs> but they'll compare. You know, they'll try to – they'll take someone like – you know, we'll use Be Honest Stewart just because we have the number one pick and, we, you know, we're nine 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 percent drafting. her. Um, Scoop. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> They'll, they'll look at her numbers and com- you know take her college numbers versus let's say another post player forward that was successful in the WNBA their college numbers and try to do some sort of analysis there and what's going to translate and what's but that's because our head coach Jenny Busek, is interested in that and like seeks out Kevin to help so there it does go both ways you know but again the conversation has started and I think more and more people will realize some things on both ends
4: and i think that's the good point that you make in your piece too sue is that you recognize that as you write it's resource intensive someone has to invest the money to accumulate the statistics but at the same time there's got to be a market for it fan bases and coaches need to want this stuff too
5: i think most players most coaches would want the analytics would want to use the data they just probably haven't known about it truthfully known that it was even a possibility
2: all right, Sue. So, um, where are you going next for ESPN?
5: Oh no, I was just a first and second rounder. I'm done oh. for the year. Yeah.
2: So, so Josh, you want to rephrase that so, question? No, I think <laughs> I, I think that the UConn streak is over. I think uh, you know, going out in the second round, there's no there's no shame in it. It was a good season for Sue Bird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we'll um, we'll obviously be watching the UConn women see if Brianna Stewart can get that fourth title, and uh, okay. you know, good luck playing with her or, you know, with whoever else the Seattle Storm pick. I mean, uh, let's be
4: real. (laughs) Olympics. Wait, you're going to the Olympics.
5: Hopefully. Fingers crossed. They'll announce it pretty soon.
2: Awesome. Well, um, thank you. Good luck.
5: Yeah, thank you, guys.
2: Sue Bird played for UConn and won two national titles. She also plays for the Seattle Storm in the WNBA, and she's a broadcaster for ESPN. All right, now is the time in the show when we talk about other people's uh, parenting decisions. And uh, on that occasion, we have Allison Benedict here, who's one of the hosts of Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting. Hello, Allison. Hello, Josh. Whenever a child is in a baseball uh, clubhouse, you are there.
6: You know who to call.
2: (laughs) So this is the weirdest story of like the last four days, maybe of the last uh, five days, Mm -hmm. if we want (laughs) to... stretch it out a little bit. But Adam LaRoche of the White Sox had, I think, a two-year, $25 million, $26 million contract. He was going into the second year of that, and he walks away from the team saying that family was more important to him. The White Sox president, Ken Williams, told LaRoche that he could not bring his 14-year-old son into the clubhouse. Okay, so that's the day one version of the story. Then as we go into day day two, day three, and day four, Stefan. Uh, how, do, how does this thing evolve? We get, in, we get to. Uh, LaRoche's uh, kid was in the clubhouse every day. LaRoche's kid was on the pitcher's mound and actually like participating in practices. Uh, after we,
4: after, the, <laughs> after the president of the team had told him to dial it back and not have him be there every day and not have him be on the field. LaRoche's kid doesn't go to school during the spring, and instead travels on the road on the
2: team's charter and stays in the hotel.
4: I don't know if he has his own room, but he might.
2: He's 14 years old. Some players on the team, including Chris Sale, spoke up and said that they were lied to, that Drake LaRoche was a member of the team. Maybe he was even the captain of the team, that they like loved having him around. Then there were some stories with anonymous sources saying, actually, a lot of the members of the team were very annoyed by having this kid around all the time in the workplace. I feel
6: that way about Pesca's kids.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Aww, so... That's so sad. So, Allison... With that introduction so that actually have, happens.
3: They come
2: every other week. I was just a joke. <laughs> oh, with right. that introduction having been given, we're going to now speak in order of the number of kids that each of us has. Right. So, you have the floor.
6: Uh yeah, I mean, this is a weird story, I agree. It seems like he could have brought his kid occasionally and that would have been fine, and I side with all of the people whether it's just the manager or many of his uh teammates who said it's too much. I mean, it's too much. It's crazy. I don't really care if this kid doesn't go to school and they homeschool him for whatever their reasons are. I mean, maybe I have a judgment about that, but (laughs) for the purposes of this show, I don't care. That's fine. Uh, But he doesn't need to be at work with his dad all the time. Do you guys know... So he, uh, Adam himself is the son of a pitcher, right? Mm-hmm. Was he in the clubhouse all the time with his dad? Is this like a family I don't believe he tradition? was in the
4: clubhouse 100% of the time, but like <laughs> most sons of baseball players, Major League Baseball players, he was an occasional visitor.
6: Right, but this, but, but this is much more extreme
3: Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah.
6: Yeah. I mean, does anyone think that this was
3: okay? Well, you see, you got to remember, Adam LaRoche grew up in the 1970s and 80s when parenting was normal and when the rules around what to do with kids were, you know, there were some constraints Mm -hmm. as opposed to 2015 when it's game on, Drake's in the club. As long as he tips the clubbies, (laughs) everyone should be fine i don't disagree or maybe i have a judgment about homeschooling but i definitely have a judgment about home clubbing they weren't schooling him it wasn't just that yes in addition to whatever however we define his education he's doing some baseball stuff it was literally a clubhouse let's think about that word for a second a clubhouse is a better learning environment than a school that is incorrect.
6: No, I mean they said they got him tutors, right? It's like he's a celebrity, you know, movie kid who get has tutors on set. Oh, well,
4: I actually looked up the tutoring service <laughs> that Drake LaRoche's parents were using. It's called the Sylvan Learning Center. And here are a couple of comments that I found online. Expensive improvement, barely seen, lots of talk, lots of driving, lots of hours, lots of money, lots of talk, waste of money, waste of time, waste of intellectual time. But they do give out points to get carnival quality junk toys. It actually sounds a lot like Trump University. (laughs) Parents take out loans and get very little in return.
2: In 2013, LaRoche said, we're not big on school. I told my wife... He's going to learn a lot more useful information in the clubhouse than he will in the cl- classroom as far as life lessons. He got an A in hot foot. <laughs> Sunflower seed spitting. Mm-hmm. Crotch grabbing would, would be another big one. So the part of this that fascinates me is that a couple of years ago, Daniel Murphy of the Mets like starts this whole conversation because he like, missed a game to be there for the birth of his child yeah cue mike francesa rant (laughs) i understand one game (laughs) so i guess the difference here is that this does not affect adam laroche's ability to like play baseball he was like really shitty last year but like you know that that can happen for a lot of reasons uh I,
6: i was wondering about that is was he just sort of looking for a way out
3: well, no, he would have got—see, the thing, it, it does seem that he's putting his money where his mouth is. He would have—he could have been the shittiest player in the world and still collected, collected $13 million. Yeah, these are guaranteed yeah. contracts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: But, Allison, I mean, what do you make around the conversation, uh, uh, you know, about men in sports and, like, fatherhood? You don't really hear about— Guys having to like sacrifice because they're on the road all the time. That's like never, ever been said about any athlete ever.
6: I mean, I'm happy that that conversation is happening. This is a really bad story for it to be happening around, though. I mean, the Daniel Murphy story was much better. Like, or who wasn't there also a uh, football player last year? Well,
2: football players can't miss games because they only have 16. I mean, let's be real. Like, that's (laughs) just not, it just makes no sense. You got to plan it out. With baseball players, like, one game, who cares? Right. (laughs)
6: <laughs> or three games, who cares? I mean, the that Daniel Mur- Murphy thing was pretty clear that, you know, Daniel Murphy was doing the right thing and good job. And it's nice for these people to like care about their children. This is different.
2: Well, it is inconvenient when the anecdotes that we uh, talk about to get into larger narratives are actually conf- complicated and do not, you know, present uh, Easy solutions. That's what I hate. The thing I hate most about journalism, Allison. I
6: mean, <laughs> if this guy was instead a lawyer or a teacher, you know, I'm he. I'm glad that he cares a lot about his child and wants to be deeply involved in his education. Uh, and spend all of his time with him, but, like, it wouldn't be okay. So this is not really about
3: baseball, is it? Well, I guess the fact that you could say clubhouse and it seems more kid-friendly, and that yeah. first and second day story it was seems less mean, kid-friendly. Well, the word clubhouse What's seems clubhouse? friendly. It's like and the musketeers ma- it's, like it's not white-sneakered law firm, it's white-shoed law firm. But, of course, <laughs> you're books. learning a lot There's, less. like, a library in a law firm. I mean, it seems like Adam LaRoche also didn't take that next that extra step, which maybe one can only have learned from going to an actual school, of saying to himself, what if everyone did this? What if all mm-hmm. the kids of all the players were always running around underfoot, under hot foot, would not be a good thing? And I do think that there is a racial component here because I've only heard Chris Sale and Adam Eaton and white teammates of the White Sox uh, speaking up for LaRoche. I haven't heard any of the Hispanic teammates. And, you know, Kenny Williams is a black manager. I just, you know, baseball, the white parts of baseball are largely... Um, Southern and Christian, and I think that a bunch of that was going on with uh, Adam Laroche. Adam Laroche is also case. like a Duck Dynasty guy. Yeah,
4: who's posed, who's posted pictures of him and Young Drake yeah. toting weaponry. Uh, I have a couple of additional thoughts here. One is, I love how this guy gets praised for putting his family first, which is easy for him, given that he's made seventy million dollars in his career. He has the luxury of being able to drag his child to his fun workplace every yeah. day two is he's such a great dad he put his adolescent son in the awkward position of becoming a national news story that he is the reason that this guy is giving up his 13 million dollar salary and retiring it seems like a pretty, pretty big burden that could have been avoided by negotiating with management and maybe teaching his kid that instead of walking away with your middle finger up in the air you might be better served trying to reach a reasonable negotiated solution to a problem.
6: One other comment is, I mean, there are reasons that their daughter, Montana, I guess, couldn't be in the clubhouse uh, penises. But, you know, what message does that send as, yeah. as a parent that, so, like, you want to you, you spend all your time with your one child and not your other not a good one. Well,
3: if his wife, if his <laughs> wife, if his wife worked in that hypothetical law firm, maybe Montana. Could. That's a,
4: I think Montana is working at the E Three Meat Company, which is LaRoche's other business. I saw business. that he has a
6: meat business. Yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> or maybe maybe Drake's going to go work there every day now. I would hope so because it's really no different. Shouldn't be any different than baseball, right? It's just a workplace. I
2: should have offered to be Drake's agent. I should have said, you know, Dad, here's what we'll do. You're getting thirteen million this year. How about you keep playing? give me the $13 million, we could do something cool with it. We could buy Mm -hmm. like a really big gun. Mm -hmm. We could like spend a lot of father son time shooting the gun together. Maybe like we'll we'll do like a college fund or something. But it is interesting that a 14 year old kid would be in the clubhouse for so long. And I think, I mean, we don't really know what's going on in there. But these are all, the the players are like grown-up children. They're treated like grown-up children. And so I think a 14-year-old would fit in there really great. I can understand not wanting to have him around. But could you think of a workplace that would be more conducive to a 14-year-old child, except perhaps a toy company?
6: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about the clubhouse atmosphere. Don't they, like, all cheat on their wives and probably talk about it (laughs) in there? in the clubhouse. (laughs) No, but they talk about it, Right. (laughs)
2: Well, that could have been the reason. I mean... They're not all married. It's annoying, probably, to have to, like, not curse and, like, be, like, just uh, louts. Scratch. Yeah. There is, like, those weird cultural divide because there's so many, like, hardcore Christians in baseball. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there are also a lot of people who are hardcore not Christians. (laughs) And so it does seem like the White Sox had this, like, really bizarre um, dynamic in their clubhouse and this exacerbated it.
3: Also, if he had played, I'm just thinking, if LaRoche had played for the Yankees a couple years ago, Drake could have learned about the glory of gift baskets from Derek Jeter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, Allison, we've solved a lot here. I'm glad I could help. <laughs> the podcast is Mom and Dad are Fighting.
6: We, we talk, talk about ab- sports a lot, a lot of sports. Mike's come on a bunch of times, actually, to yes. talk about.
2: In his role as human parent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> che- All right, Allison. Other humans. Thank you for uh, being with us on this sports show. Thanks, guys. Now it is time for Afterballs, and Stefan informs me that Adam LaRoche is a regular on a show called Buck Commander. He's a buck man. <laughs> Along with Ryan Longerhans. Oh,
3: Langerhans.
2: I always enjoyed the work of Ryan, eyelets of Longerhans.
3: <laughs> I always think of that, too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> should we do eyelets of
3: Langerhans? What, or should we? Is that in the kidney? Which, which uh... Which organ benefits from the islets of Langerhans?
2: I thought that it doesn't have something to do with hormones.
4: It's a group of pancreatic cells that secrete insulin and
2: glucagon. That's it. Pancreas, yes. All right, uh, Mike. What is your islets of Langerhans? So,
3: out of curiosity, I was wondering if the Duke Yale matchup in the tournament would be the game with the most with two schools with the highest Asian American population. Although I said to myself, probably not, because you know, if Hawaii makes it, they'll be they'll be facing Duke. So, Duke has uh, it's a lot easier to figure out what the ethnic composition of the Duke student body is. Twenty two percent Asian. Yale's a little bit harder to find. Different news articles put it in. The double digits, but the low double digits. Anyway, when Duke went to play Hawaii, it was indeed Hawaii lists 71% of the student body as Asian American. Now, I did say to myself, well, what about, you know, public schools in California with a large Asian American population? And in fact, Cal Berkeley wow, just blew my mind. Because they don't list, uh, like Duke does, the Asian American population of the school. They break it down to Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, Korean, other Asians, South Asian, Vietnamese. And when you add it all up, it winds up being 40%, which sounds like it's not even half, except 3% decline to state ethnicity and 17.4% are listed as international. So 40% of the 80%, which means that half the domestic students there at Cal are Asian American. And when you factor in where the international students come from, it's probably more, but I don't have the stats. That's not what jumped out at me. What jumped out at me is... Uh, in case you were wondering, the white population of Cal is uh, 24%, 24 24.8%, depending on the year. The black population of the school. So here are the statistics for each uh, class. In 2013, 133 African-Americans enrolled. In 2014, 159. In 2015, 157. It would seem that if you just do the math by class, it would get up to 600. But when you add in transfer students, there are 900 111 African-American slash black undergraduates in the fall of 2015 out of 27,000 undergraduates. Now, I did a little more research on this, and it turns out that uh, this is an article from the East Bay Express, Why Black Students Are Avoiding UC Berkeley. So this talks about how more black students are offered admission at Cal, a higher percentage than actually enroll, and it talks about the various reasons why, you know, qualified black students don't want to go to the University of California at Berkeley. When you look at all the schools of where the greatest proportion of their black or African-American students are playing sports, Josh just sends me, Cal is not the worst. Auburn is a public school. And if you just look at On this question of over representation of black male athletes on the football and basketball teams. 77.9% of Auburn's football and men's basketball teams are black men, whereas only 3.2% of Auburn's undergraduates are black men.
2: Stefan, what's your Islets of Langerhans? Well, it's been hard to miss those always reppin'
4: warm-up shirts worn by some teams in the NCAA tournaments. The bench jockeys marketing them play for institutions sponsored by Nike, which had 44 of the 68 schools in the men's field and a bunch more in the women's. You guys both noticed, Mike, you observed on Twitter that at this point, I think it's safe to assume that everyone is always reppin'. And you, Josh, remarked, Hate how the NCAA is devaluing reppin. If everyone is always reppin, then is anyone ever really, truly reppin? And that's a good question. But to me, there are bigger questions. Like, who are the players always representing? And the answer to that is everyone generating money off of them, Nike, their schools, the NCAA. Then we need to ask why they are always reppin because they have no choice. And finally, how did they come to be Always Reppin? And that seems to be a mystery. I couldn't find a story explaining how Always Reppin wound up as the official Nike March Madness 2016 trademark $36 long sleeve t-shirt slogan. But there are two likely sources. The first is Drake's 2009 single, Uptown. Featuring Bun B and Lil Wayne Off of his album, So Far Gone The song begins, Hardly Home But Always Reppin'
3: Hardly home but always reppin' You hardly on And always second When I'm awake You always restin' And when they call you to answer You a hardly question I
2: if I can set the scene a little bit, uh, Stefan was swaying back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was.
4: Uh the second more recent and more likely source is the weekend's recent hit low life featuring future. The hook begins, cause I'm always repping for that low life. I'm not saying I'm just I'm just saying. Cause I'm always repping for that low life.
1: Cause I'm always repping for that. Low life.
2: Josh was swaying there, let's be clear. This time, Stefan was nodding his head. While Josh
4: was swaying, because Josh was swaying. You have to figure that Nike's pop culture leeching catchphrase department pounced on the trending hashtag-friendly lowlife usage of Always Reppin', lawyered to make sure it didn't need to cut a deal with the rapper, focus grouped for recognition, and then started printing those T-shirts in China or Bangladesh. But is Always Reppin' as used by Drake and by The Weeknd an appropriate phrase to describe NCAA basketball? Let's do a quick lyrical analysis. Drake, hardly home but always reppin'. Given how much NCAA basketball players are required to travel, wearing logoed gear, absolutely hardly home, always reppin'. The weekend, I'm always reppin' for that low life, reppin' for that low life. Again, no question, NCAA basketball players are indeed representing the low who generate billions of dollars in revenue from their performance, but give none of it back to them. All right, back to Drake. Now I run the game, you stupid motherfuckers. I see all this money through my Ohio State Buckeyes. Wait a second. This
2: is the clean version?
4: You want me to say motherfuckers?
2: I think I do. Okay.
4: Now I run the game, you stupid motherfuckers. I see all this money through my Ohio State Buckeyes. The rhyming is a little off there. The players do run the game, and they see all of the money but they only see it in a metaphorical sense, Josh. They see it being paid to networks, coaches, athletic directors, others. All right, back to the weekend. I just took some Molly what else? Hey, got some bitch from Follies with us. She gonna fuck the squad. What else? Right, this is more problematic for a student athlete. Molly might trigger a Wait, positive can you drug say,
2: test. Can you just say that one more time? Got some no, bitch from Follies with us? I'm kidding. Okay.
4: <laughs> Molly might trigger a positive drug test. Picking up a woman at Follies, the Atlanta strip club, and having group sex with her with your teammates could create negative publicity that might endanger one's Athletic scholarship, I think we can all agree on that. All right, one more each. Drake, I palm the game like it's a Spalding ball and take flight from the free throw line and slam it down like I'm the great Mike.
2: Well, good, that was very uh, good, clean, child friendly, good, clean basketball reference, appropriate for the send, bench players I'm going to those Drake, I'm gonna send that to Drake Laroche. These guys
4: dream of hitting the big shot. Drake Laroche would would be a perfectly fine consumer of that lyric. All right, finally back to the weekend. Porches in the Valley, I got Bentleys, I got Rari's, taking pain pills on the plane, getting chartered, popping tags on tags, I was starving. Bitch, I got the juice and the carbon. All right, popping tags is buying or stealing clothes. <laughs> juice is GHB, the date rape drug, and I have no idea what, what the carbon is, but I'm guessing using the carbon would result
2: in NCAA disciplinary action. Isn't carbon probably like a diamond reference? I don't know. Anyone? Anyone? I I think we're here by ourselves.
4: I got the juice and the carbon. I don't know. But if... Don't know. Uh, All right. So while neither song completely embodies the NCAA's core principles of academic achievement, both do reveal a truth about college athletics that makes Always Repin" the perfect tournament slogan. A writer for the website Bustle recently analyzed The weekend's lyrics, and I will quote her here. Low life is less about being a total scumbag and more about being a scumbag and owning it. Exactly. Nike, NCAA, CBS, member schools. Keep
2: on repping, everyone. Josh, what's your islets of longer Hans? So I'm going to continue uh, my occasional series of windmill tilting here, just going back and... Publish try, a, you should publish a book of these. Trying to urge uh, the right-thinking people of the world to adopt something that is so self-evident. So Northern Iowa, Texas a and if you, w- if you weren't watching the game uh, live uh, and you heard about this amazing comeback, you'd want to go check it out on YouTube. The NCAA posted like a two-minute and 15-second video that shows the whole like 12 points and 44 seconds in very concise fashion. It's like awesome to watch. It's thrilling. Um, great comeback. If you actually did watch in real time, I think it took about 12 minutes for that 44 seconds To go off the clock. Some of it was timeouts. Some of it was the referees continually making timing errors. The clock didn't start right one time. They wanted to make sure that they stopped the clock at the right time when the ball went went through the hoop. The ends of college basketball games and of NBA games are unbelievably bad. These are the most exciting parts of the game. You couldn't have as we talked about, this is an unprecedented comeback. And as a live viewing experience, it was like one one millionth of what it could have been if it had played out in real time. And the like way that it'll be remembered and highlights over the years is entirely unrepresentative of what it was like to watch this in real time. So two comments. This wasn't all about timeouts, but I'm going to get back on the timeout hobby horse. They actually reduced the number of timeouts in NCAA basketball this year, thank God. So you can only use three um, in the second half of games. You can't, like, carry a million of them in. You have to, you know, use them in the first half or lose them. You can only use three in the second half, which is better than what it was before. But I wrote a piece, like, you know, several years ago arguing that it should only be media timeouts, only TV timeouts. The way that they do it now is under 16 minutes, the first stoppage to the timeout, and then under 12, under 8, under 4 I would be totally in favor of having even more automatic media stoppages if there weren't timeouts called by players and coaches. If you couldn't, when you're trapped in the corner, just call timeout, which is the weirdest rule that nobody would ever think should exist. Like, There's not a parallel in other sports of like in soccer, when you're just trapped in the corner, you call timeout and like go to the bench and talk about it. In football, you can't like call timeout if a guy's about to tackle you. It makes absolutely no sense. And Along with it being just like weird and unsporting, it also just takes a lot of the suspense. Like when players time- call timeout, it's like by definition, typically like a dramatic moment in the game. And so, you know, you did see at the end of Northern Iowa, Texas AM and m where – Because Northern Iowa didn't have timeouts, that's why guys were like crazily throwing the ball to the other team. And like, that's fair enough. Like if you can't get out of a trap and can't like throw the ball to your teammate, you deserve to lose the ball. You don't deserve to be bailed out. So that's number one. Number two, I was talking to a friend about this and I just feel great regret for everything that I have said about replay over the years. I think it's like gone too far. I think that there's actually no turning back. And so we should have proceeded with more caution here. This is uh, not that anyone ever listens to me, as evidence in the last uh, couple afterballs. But I think once you start reviewing stuff and once – it's probably just inevitable this was going to happen and there just wasn't anyone anything to do about it. But it's actually – I would be better, and I think a lot of people would be happier if – they just let the game happen and people would still people would complain but people complain now it's not like it leads to any fewer complaints about you know refs missing calls i think that the way that it stops the flow of the game when you're reviewing every clock decision when you're reviewing every time the ball goes off of someone and this is just in basketball i think it doesn't add enough to the like joy of the game and it doesn't the certainty that it brings does not outweigh the negatives in terms of disrupting the competition and in terms of it being a fun thing to watch josh also opposes analytics in sports you know per. should we
4: consider that your, your, per was your feelings, good you know? Per was
2: good but it's gone too far gone i mean do far. you dis, do you disagree with anything of that i said of course i don't disagree with anything you said of course how could you ever never so just be sad about, every, about sports. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Everything, is, everything is terrible. Uh, we love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash podcasts. And please leave us a comment and a rating. It helps us in the iTunes. It helps more people learn about the show. I'm a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook. Facebook.com slash and Listen is the URL. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
3: On the game like this a and ball and take flight from the free throw line and slam it down like I'm the great mite.
1: Bunny Wayne, and Drake in here, man. this go be a great night. Look at all these poses,
3: bite I swagger like a great white. Try to cross
4: me over. I just I just took some Molly, what else? Hey, got some bitch. <laughs> 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 Alright, the weekend again. I just took some Molly, what else? Hey.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay
2: you gotta leave this in. this is gold gold
0: it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper